regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where we hold long-form in-depth conversations with data and professionals and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Emmanuel, the co-founder and CEO of Amplic. Prior to founding Amplic in 2020, he was a postdoc in the database group at MIT and got his PhD in computer science from Brown University. This time, he worked on various interactive tools for visual data exploration, most of them are the infants or direct predecessors of Amplic. Before coming to the US, Emmanuel worked as a software engineer for various financial companies in Zurich and tries as a freelancer building in studio touchscreen installation for Swiss national TV and uh, developing a Spotify clone that failed miserably. So uh, Emmanuel, with that introduction, thanks for making time and glad to have you on the show today. Thanks a lot, James. Yeah, really appreciate uh, you having me and thanks a lot. I want to start our conversation a little bit with your personal background. So Based on my research, you were born and raised in Switzerland. And as mentioned briefly about in, in the introduction there, you actually finished your four-year apprenticeship in software engineering and business at the National Bank, very big in Switzerland called Credit Suites back in 2002. So yeah, could you mind sharing a bit about your upbringing and your work experience there? Sure. Yeah, no, happy to dive into that a little bit. So yeah, born and raised in Switzerland, I grew up. Uh, a little bit outside of the, the city limits of Zurich in a, in a small town. And uh, yeah, to talk a little bit about Credit Suisse and this apprenticeship, I think it might make sense to dive a little bit into the sort of education system in Switzerland, because I think it's fairly unique or at least different than what people are used to in, in the U.S. at least. So so the way it work, works in Switzerland is for secondary school, what high school is here in the U.S., there's sort of two tracks you can go down. One is a kind of more standard academic track, which is like a six-year high school degree, and then you will go off to universities. And the other one is more of a vocational track where you only do three years of high school, and then most people will end up doing an apprenticeship of something that makes sense to them. For example, if you want to become a, I don't know, electrician or something, you would do an apprenticeship with a company in that field, and usually what's split between on-the-job and, and off-the-job training. They will send you to an electrician vocational school for maybe one or two days a week. Uh, And then the rest of the week, you would shadow your mentor doing the actual work in the field and learn through that. And there's this big decision you have to make as a kid at the end of primary school, which track do you want to go down to and depends a little bit on your grade and all all sorts of things. And there's also an exam you need to take if you want to go down the academic path. And at the time, that's what I did. I took the exam, failed it, (laughs) even though I was decent enough at school. And I went down this vocational track. And then you can redo the exam a year later if you want to. But then at the time, I already made my friends and I can just stop with, with that particular track. 
And so then, yeah, after those three years of, of kind of high school, I was 15 at the time, needed to decide what type of apprenticeship do I want to do? I wasn't quite sure. And a lot of companies offer this type of business apprenticeship, which ultimately just teaches you a little bit how to work in an office, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and that sounded interesting, but also not super interesting. So I was looking around a little bit. And at the time, some of these bigger financial companies in, in Zurich started to offer an apprenticeship that kind of makes this, this sort of business aspect with some IT and software development type of skills too. And I always liked computer, never wrote code or anything. I was not like super, super nerdy, but played video games, that kind of thing. So at the time I figured that sounds pretty cool. I, I applied for that apprenticeship with, with Credit Suisse, which uh, is going through the ringer a little bit at the moment, uh, I hear. But yeah, and then during that intern apprenticeship, usually the way it's structured is they'll rotate you around different departments, six months in the back office and then six months maybe as a bank clerk and then six months in a, like an IT group and six months in a software engineering team. Mm. And then at the same time, they put you through kind of internal schools. And in this case of this particular program was a lot of kind of learning how to code basically. Yeah. And that's really how I started to get into computer science, really liked it. I really got into the kind of fun and of writing software and, and code and yeah. I see. So just reflecting on that. So th you said that was the first experience for you to actually programming. You didn't have any experience before. Yeah. I mean, I really learned through this program and I had a couple of really great mentors at Credit Suisse and these different stages of that program that kind of helped you understand what it's all about. And, and then a couple of these type of internal courses on, we had one on Java, one on SQL. We did some old school kind of PL1, it was called language that only banks use. But yeah, that's really how I, I got into computer science in general. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that origin story. So after that apprenticeship, you actually go to university and more specifically, you attend HSR, the University of Applied Science in Rapperswil for a four-year program in computer science. How would you describe your overall university experience? Yeah, it's a little bit of a similar story there in terms of the Swiss education system that there's these, this kind of dual system, if you want, uh, also for higher education. So there's kind of academic universities, and then there's these kind of more vocational colleges or universities, if you want to call them that. And so the school I went to is more the latter, like a vocational college, super small engineering focused school, only around 700 students or so in total. And yeah, really vocational. My degree was really focused on software engineering. Um, and perhaps unlike what I experienced later on during my master's in the U.S., uh, where you might only have 12 hours of lectures or so uh, a week, that particular school was lots of 30 hours a week of lectures, lots of labs, that kind of thing. And overall, I really enjoyed it because it, it got me really deeper into programming and software engineering. And it started to click more and more for me, learning some of the, the background there. If I need to think about something that maybe I didn't like too much, it is this overly maybe vocational aspect of it. Sometimes in, instead of teaching you really the fundamentals and, and theory behind some stuff, it at times focused maybe more on teaching you a particular, particular, I was in demand in, in, in the industry in Switzerland. We learned about Java swing and Java enterprise edition, like skills that at the time was really important for maybe financial companies. They also become obsolete rather quickly. Yeah, if there's one negative, then that might be that. I see. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that uh, distinction between the education system in the university versus later on. Just out of curiosity, do, do you recall any favorite classes that you take in university? 
It's a good question. I, I really actually, for some odd reason, I really liked the, the math calculus classes I took. I had a really good professor there that was really good at showing his law for math and make you like math a lot too. So I really enjoyed that class, even though I, I was not super, super strong in that. Yeah, no, I think that. And then a couple of physics classes I really didn't like. I wasn't good at, at that kind of stuff. Uh, but then all the uh, more programming, software engineering oriented courses, um, I liked a lot just because it was fun to write up uh, code for different exercises, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So after you finish uh, your university degree, you worked for several years as a full stack developer for web and mobile in Zurich. And then after that, you start a master degree in Brown University in Providence in 2010. So my question is twofold. Firstly, how would you describe uh, this kind of phase of working in between your undergrad and then your classroom? And then secondly, what motivated you to pursue a graduate degree in the U.S.? Yeah, so to answer the first question, it was really, really fun to take what I learned in, in, in that uh, university college and then apply it in, in real life. Really enjoyed that time, made tons of, of good friends, colleagues, working at different companies, and I did some freelance projects too, so it was really a fun time. At the same time, after finishing my degree, uh, I realized that eventually I want to get a little bit deeper into the computer science topic and deeper into sort of the academic side of things there. And really early on, it was clear to me that eventually I want to do a master's degree or something like that. So that was always in the, the back of my mind that I eventually would want to go down this path. And yeah, after working a few years, I felt like I was in a good place, I was able to apply what I learned. And I was looking for a new challenge, something else to do. And then I started looking into what is the easiest way for me to, to do a master's degree at a more academic university or program. And again, due to this sort of dual system of higher education in Switzerland, it turned out that it was actually really hard for me to get into a master's degree at, at an academic university in Switzerland. What I would have had to do is redo a bunch of undergrad classes of that particular university to then be able to get into the master's program. And so I started looking into programs abroad and it turned out that because of the, this reason, it would take me like maybe three years to do a master's degree in Switzerland and only a year and a half if I would do it somewhere else. From a practical standpoint, then I was like, oh yeah, maybe I should actually just do that and see if I, if I can do this abroad somewhere. And then the kind of idea of going abroad really grew on me too. One aspect, just learning better English. I was working at Credit Suisse where everything was in English, Every, everybody was speaking English, so it felt like a a good skill to have and be better at, at the language. And also just seeing a different country and experience a new thing felt like a cool thing to do. Ultimately, I ended up applying to a bunch of universities in the US and in Canada, New Zealand even. And I was able to get this really nice scholarship in Switzerland that is targeted towards people who want to do like a, a graduate degree abroad. Everything fell in place and I got into mm -hmm. Brown and yeah, just went with that. Perfect. Yeah. If it's, it sounds like you're pretty deliberate about Cut up your career later and I not like you wanna after again getting a few years but you wanna go deeper into the academic side thing, right? Like you wanna get you have that intellectual pursuit rather than stay in yeah. the engineering. The, yeah, I know looking back and now talking about it, it sounds a little bit like that. At the time it's also stumbled into some of these things a little bit too. I met somebody who did a master's degree in the US in computer science and he got me interested in this idea. A bunch of random coincidences that kind of led to this, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So you, you, you start at Brown around 2010, I believe, and you, you complete your master for about two years. And then actually after that, 
you stay and then you pursue a PhD degree uh, under the uh, advancement of Professor Andy Van Dam. Uh, and the purpose of your PhD dissertation is to make that analysis more accessible through user experience with approachable visual metaphors. First of all, can you talk more about the reason to actually study and pursue a PhD degree? That's the first question. And secondly, when you reflect on the act of your PhD experience, what's the thread that ties your research together? No, yeah, have a chat about that. To answer the first question, again, it was actually relatively random. I went to, uh, to Brown with the idea of I'll stay there for a year and a half, finish my master's degree, and then go back to Switzerland, find a job and, and work somewhere. Um, but then in the first week or so, I, I got to meet a bunch of professors, including Andy. And part of the master's degree was that you need to do a master's thesis, a little bit of a, a research project. So I was just chatting with different professors and ended up starting working in, in Andy's lab and Andy's group. And really had a great time there, really liked working together with Andy. And eventually he actually just convinced me to stay on and, and do a PhD throughout the, my year and a half there. He was the reason I, I stuck at, at Brown for doing a, a PhD, which is, it's, yeah, again, a little random coincidence. Again, I never had this idea of doing a PhD, but then by chance of working with Andy, it really grew on me and sounded like a, a great idea to do that. In terms of the, I think your second question was around the kind of common thread throughout the, the research might sound a little bit silly, but I was always just into creating cool stuff, flashy demos, things that people like, things that can create good videos that showcase stuff and a little bit kind of question the status quo of traditional user interfaces, if you want. And I was really into this kind of idea of applying uh, the kind of interaction you get from an iPhone or a tablet or whatever, which at the time was fairly recent-ish, I would say, to traditional user interface experiences. This kind of idea of that everything's visual, all the elements are directly interactable with, and interaction is kept at a minimum and very fluid interaction style. So I think that's probably the kind of common theme throughout my research there. Handwriting recognition goes in that too, how to take something that we all know how to do to write stuff with a pen and apply that to interact with a computer system. And by doing that, creating flashy demos over time, I just became really interested in this idea of making data analysis, data science kind of more accessible and try to solve some of the problems that you might run into while, while you're doing that. Yeah. Thanks for sh sharing that motivation as well as the, the story behind focus of your PhD. And actually, I want to zoom in more into this different research project that you work on as a PhD student. And I was browsing through your uh, academic website a bit, and there's a lot of different papers and projects that you have published in a variety of conferences throughout those years. And in particular, you work on a variety of things ranging from interactive data exploration, visual regular expression, interactive analytics, handwritten spreadsheet, and progressive visualization, just to name a few. Can you highlight a couple of the major projects that you're most proud of? Yeah, I think the one I'm probably most proud of is the, the first paper I ever wrote, which was called Panoramic Data. Ended up being the early predecessor of some of the ideas that went into Ein Blake's product now. Uh, but basically, it was a system uh, to visually and through pen and touch interaction, create SQL queries, if you want, and uh, chart data, look at data, do group buys, like all sorts of kind of common data analyses things, but through a, a very visual user interface. And I think the kind of reason why I really like that project and I'm proud of it is not because I think it's the best paper I, I ever wrote or because it's the, the most exciting thing, but just because it actually was the first and the hardest to write coming with my background of not super academic upbringing, more like this kind of vocational thing. 
I never really written a research paper before throughout my career. And this was really the first time I had to go through this process with all the frustrations that come along of getting rejected at a conference you submitted. And I just feel like going through that process really taught me a lot to, to get better at research and to understand what goes into writing papers and how to make sure that your, the research you're doing resonates well with other researchers. Was, took me a long time to write that paper and was a tough process, but I think that's why I'm proud of it, that it just ended up being foundational in terms of all the other, all the things I learned by while doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and on that note, maybe reflecting on that experience, but what, what do you see as like the uh, common traits of a successful researcher? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I think what I've learned over time is Andy is a very hands-off uh, advisor in the sense of he just let you work on whatever you think was interesting and, and, and do your own thing, which was great. But also at the same time, it was a little bit hard to get into the sort of habit of writing papers if there's not somebody that really goes through this process with you, at least for the first time, or gives feedback as you do it, or even teaches you how to think about what the structure of a research paper is, uh, that kind of thing. But then Andy was really good at connecting me with other folks that sort of later on became mentors of mine. Uh, one was Stephen Drucker, uh, who's a researcher at Microsoft Research. Um, and he filled that role in for me to help me go through this process. So yeah, so if there's one thing as a kind of early PhD or researcher, I think having somebody that can really walk you through the very tactical and practical things of what goes into writing a, a successful paper is, was, is really helpful to have. I see. So emphasizing on the, so the, the mentor, having a good mentor can show you how to conduct proper research is very valuable for you at this point. You highlight that paper a little bit, and, but I guess like the broader team of your focus on your PhDs, and you should put this on your academic profiles, is this focus on the intersection of human computer interaction, information visualization, and, and data science, Philip. Yep. How did you like come about become interested in that intersection? You mentioned it earlier about making cool demo, but how does that sort of manifest into other field like data science? No, it's a good question. Again, this is the way it happened for me was a little bit random. You know, I was always interested in human computer interaction and interfaces in general. So that was why I started working with Andy. Um, but then at the time, Andy had a, a grant from, I think it was Sharp and also from Microsoft. They both came out at the time with these big interactive whiteboards, like 50, 80 inch screens that had touch and pen support. And so these companies gifted us a couple of these devices and gave us money to come up with interesting research ideas of how these tools uh, interfaces could be used. And while coming, thinking about what sort of would work well on a big screen like that, we stumbled upon data visualization might be a really good way to leverage the screen real estate of these large devices and really snowballs from there that this kind of topic of using big interact interactive whiteboards and pen and touch interaction to work with data, visualize data. And then later on, do more machine learning, more data science things. That's how this started. Yeah, the product of circumstances uh, I was in, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. Did you have any ex exposure to like data science before getting into this, do, 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 doing uh, your research? Not really. So I don't know. So when I was working at Credit Suisse, one of the last things I did there was work as a, I think you would call it like a, a data engineer today, like taking data from Bloomberg and massaging it into the right format and putting it in the right database. A lot of ETL stuff, which maybe is part of data or is part of data science now. 
So that I had a lot of experience with working with large data sets and, and databases and SQL, but not a lot of experience with visualizations or with machine learning. That was something really I learned while at Brown. And I was also working very closely with Tim Krasta, who was a professor, who was a professor at Brown and then later moved to MIT and became a co-founder in Einblick as well. And he was more in that kind of data machine learning field. So I, I learned a lot about kind of that aspect of it from and by working uh, with him. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And during your time as a PhD student, you actually also interned twice at Microsoft Research in Redmond. What valuable lessons have you learned from interning at Microsoft? Yeah, overall, I had a really great time at Microsoft Research. Again, mentioning Stephen Drucker here, who was my mentor there and really helped me in my career. Yeah, by just being an awesome mentor. I would say maybe the thing that kind of stands out is learning or understanding more the kind of value of collaboration in, in research a little bit more. Microsoft Research, for me, it was like really this place where you can openly share your ideas and, and brainstorm with everybody and listen to their feedback and opinions on, on what you're doing uh, and let that kind of influence your research direction. So to me, that was maybe if there's one thing that stands out, it's this idea that good research happens if lots of people collaborate together. I see, yeah. And maybe the other thing that looking kind of stands out a little bit is that I realized sort of the advantage that some of these big companies have when doing research over academic institutions. At the time at Microsoft, we, we ran a user study with a bunch of product managers that were using product telemetry data to analyze their products. And so it was super easy to find people like that within Microsoft, right? We just sent an email to a mailing list. And a day later, we had 15 people signed up for our user study and we got access to all their data. So it was really easy to get access to, to these kind of resources. But doing something similar like that at a university is just much, much harder because you just don't have that easy access to data and people who are working with this type of data. So that kind of stands out too from interning at Microsoft. I see. So the collaboration aspect, as well as the uh, advantage of industry research over university research. Exactly. Yeah. Just the amount of resources that you have at your disposal at a place like that. That's, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So after finishing your PhD, you joined the uh, CCLR at MIT in 2018, while you work as a postdoc associate in uh, Professor Tim Kraska group. And you already mentioned he moved from uh, Broward to MIT yep. in the spirit. And during your time at MIT CCL, based on my research, you contribute to this project called Nostar, which is an interactive data science system with drag and drop interface, among other things. Uh, could you mind talking about your time as a postdoc at MIT? Sure, yeah. I know how to do that. For me, it was a really easy transition from Brown to MIT, mostly because I was already working super close with Tim while he was at Brown. And the Northstar project you mentioned actually started at Brown. And then he moved to MIT and I ended up just following him, if that, if that makes sense, right? From a kind of getting accustomed to a new university and a new research team or whatever, like that was super easy and smooth because, you know, I knew already all the people there, or at least Tim and, and, and his folks. That being said, it felt a little bit more like a job being a postdoc than, uh, you know, a student, if that makes sense. You know, I, I guess, you know, that's just how it's set up. But I felt much deeper connected with Brown and the Brown University culture and the whole university uh, than I felt with MIT, uh, mostly because as a postdoc, you're neither a student nor you're a professor, you're in the middle and you don't feel as closely embedded into the culture of the university as you would do otherwise. 
But yeah, no, I had a really great time. Like the database group at MIT, fantastic people there, learned a lot by just talking with other postdocs, other PhD students, and it's a great environment to, to do research in. For sure. I'm curious, as you finish your PhD and you do decide to do the postdoc route, was you, at this point, were you thinking about uh, becoming a professor? Yeah, I was actually. I wanted to keep my option open. I wasn't 100% convinced. Doing the two internships at Microsoft Research really got me interested in doing research in an industrial setting like that. Um, but yeah, it was definitely in the back of my mind. It was either I would do something like Microsoft Research or I would try to apply to professor jobs. I see. So you've been telling the job to focus more on like the, the research. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, for, for sure. So you, you, you spent about one and a half years at MIT and in January of 2020, you actually helped co-founder Emblick AI. And later you become the CEO of the company and Emblick is developing a visual computing platform that enables data teams to answer tougher, more meaningful questions and making advanced analytics and motivating more streamlined and accessible. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, no, happy to do that. It all started with the project we talked about previously, like this North Star project, um, which for a long time was uh, sponsored by uh, a DARPA uh, grant, um, the, where the objective of the grant was basically to build systems uh, that would make data science more accessible. Um, you know, as you might imagine, there's tons of data in the government, uh, but not enough data scientists to answer all these questions that, that you might have. The, the DARPA folks were looking for ways to or for tools to empower their existing workforce within the government to, to be just more productive with data, how to make maybe regular data analysts be productive with the latest and greatest in machine learning, for example. And throughout this grant, our research team just grew over and over, and we became a, a tightly knit group of folks that were working on, on this particular North Star project. All of them actually ended up becoming co-founders in Einblick later on. And we all really believed in, in the value of what we were doing with this project. And eventually it became clear that people wanted to use some of the prototypes that we built and, but we just didn't have kind of the capacity to support this as part of a academic research team. Maybe silly things like supporting people to reset their password if they log in, but all kinds of things we didn't care as part of the research. We just wanted to do enough that we can write a paper about it but we didn't really have the infrastructure in place to support people actually using the product. And at the time, it became a little bit of a question of the, the, the DARPA project was running out. I was at the end of my, my postdoc and other folks at the end of their PhD. And we were at this kind of crossroads of, do we let it die as an academic project or do we want to keep it going? And to do that, we have to spin it out into a company. And linking it back to the previous questions, I never really thought about this kind of previously of, of doing a startup because I was focused on yeah, staying in research in, in general, but then talking through it with other people. And at the time we had some early conversations with the folks at Amplify Partners who then naturally ended up leading our seed round. And just by going through this process, really the idea again grew on me and grew on the rest of the team that this might be a, a good idea to, to do. I think personally what really drove it home that this is a good idea was that we got invited to this data science conference strata by O'Reilly, by Ben Lorica. He invited us as an academic project to go there and have a booth in the middle of all these startups and established companies. Mm -hmm. But the conference was really focused on data science practitioners. 
And over those, I don't know, two or three days of the conference, we just gave hundreds and hundreds of demos to people of the prototype that we had. Uh, and the response was just overwhelmingly positive. Everybody wanted to try it out. Everybody was super interested in it. And personally, that gave me really a lot of confidence that this might actually be a good idea to spin this out into a, into a company. Thanks for sharing all those details. I think that, yeah, personal Paul, doesn't want to get the research project die, have some initial conversation with investors as well as reception of the initial prototypes. Those are the key, the building blocks to exactly. validate the, the conviction that you have to spin out this research into an actual product that, can, that is commercial. Yeah, and that also feels a little bit like your baby, right? Like you don't want to just let it die as an academic thing. Really, I'm best at, we all invest lots of time in this and just keeping it alive and seeing how far we can push it. Uh, it was really, uh, sounded like a good idea to us at the time. Yeah. And we will talk about this concept of um, commercialization uh, research a little bit later on, but uh, just touch on the the founding team a little bit. So you said, no, it was founded by Tim Kraska as well as all the other graduate student researchers in the group. I believe there's five of you. How did all of the founders divide concur responsibilities when it's become a startup rather than just support like a read project? Yeah. To some degree, it was a little bit natural because each of us had different things in the research project already that we specialized on. Yuan Chang, he was is the backend person really interested in how to scale computation, how to make automated machine learning work. So that was his research area. He ended up just taking over that aspect of the company, building out that, that, that part of the system. Phil Eidman, who also did his PhD with Andy at Brown, very similar to me, did a lot of UI, UX thing. He's a wizard when it comes to HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. He ended up just running the UI front-end team. And then Benedetto Bulatiu, his area was more theoretical data science, theoretical research. He became just our AI evangelist and top data scientist that we have and does a lot of customer-facing engagements and some consulting work with companies that want to use Einblick in, in the data science space. Just, it fell naturally into place a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, perfect. Um, zooming a bit deeper into the actual product, Amblick provides an integrated environment for descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive analytics with features like heat driver analysis, autonomous capabilities, and what if scenarios planning. What are some of the technical challenges developing such an integrated environment? Uh, yeah, no, happy to chat about that. I think the kind of way to think about the product that we're building is it's a little bit like Miro, one of these whiteboarding tools, meets a Jupyter notebook. You get the same UI modality as you would with a mirror board, zoom in, zoom out, pan around, really lay out your analysis on this space. But then it's powered by the full power of Python and that you will get from it from a Jupyter notebook. And so I think generally speaking, a lot of the kind of technical challenges, maybe they fall into two brackets. One of them, or there was a lot of kind of interesting UI challenges of how to expose all this functionality, all these things you can do in a non-overwhelming way. And in a way that's easy to learn, right? If somebody's coming from like a Python notebook world, we want to make it as easy for them to jump into Einblick without getting overwhelmed. How do we accomplish that? And then maybe more on the back end th side of things, how do you manage and execute all these ingenious workflows in a smart manner so that they can scale up to large data sets or still be performance, return results quickly to the user. They don't have to wait and, and stare at progress bars for minutes and minutes. It's a, just a big systems challenge, if that makes sense, because there's so many different kind of aspects that we talked UI, backend, execution model, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, so you used to blend both the interface and the front end as well as the backend system applied. Yeah. And how these two things work together. Uh, I see. And just zooming in on the front end aspect of it a little bit more, you mentioned about the concept of Miro for data people. Last year, the team introduced this you know, real-time remote collaboration uh, features through Vito enable data whiteboards. First of all, can you talk more about the collaboration challenges in data? Mm-hmm. And secondly, how did these features uh, address them? Sure, no, happy to do that. Generally, I'm a really strong believer that good data science can only happen when folks of different backgrounds and different experience uh, and expertise levels uh, closely work together. I think the method of a stakeholder talking to a data science team about the solution they want, and then the data science team doing their own thing for a couple of weeks, and then come back, present the result, only to maybe realize that some of the assumptions that they made were completely wrong. That kind of more water flowy process of doing data science is just bound to fail, right? You want to be able to respond quickly to the questions you have, and you really want to be matching technical experts and domain experts. We have them work really closely together to to make sure you produce uh, optimal results. And so I think uh, like a tool like Einblick in those situations can really act shared language for those folks with different backgrounds so that they can come together and have a common place to talk and work over data problems. But super easy to go in a meeting, start up a new canvas, as we call them, similar to a new Miro board, and then just start pulling data from different sources, visualize them. Um, and all doing all this without losing the flexibility of, of what you would get in a Python notebook. In the meeting, somebody can bring in their own model, their own algorithm, and you can look at it together and really quickly iterate on data problems and super quickly prototype solutions. And then if you're happy with them, you can always go off and then make sure those are more robust. But to spike an initial solution, I think a tool like Ambly can really help the co- collaboration and make sure everybody's on the same page when it comes to how to solve a particular data problem. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Just this fossil video collaboration, this is pretty interesting because it sounds like, um, I actually also got a chance to watch the, a little bit of the demo that, that on the website. Yeah, you can actually see you talking with your collaborators environment via video chat, right? And people can collaborate virtually on, on data analysis. So it's definitely is a very powerful concept. Like from a technical part, part of view, I guess the backend part of you, right? Like, how did, you know, you actually do that being able to embed video into the UI? I'm, I think, you know, the, actually the video piece turned out to be not that complicated. I think what's more challenging or was more challenging for us was the kind of whole multiplayer type of modes that, that you see in like Figma or Miro or whatever, where, you know, multiple people look at the same thing. And if somebody moves something around, everybody gets updates at the same time. So that part was challenging to get right. And then just overlaying videos on top of your mouse cursors or whatever ended up being relatively simple. There's a bunch of these video services that just provide APIs that you can plug into to your tools. That, that, that ended up being not that complicated. But uh, yeah, no, I think the multiplayer mode, getting that, making sure that the state of a canvas is reproduced on different clients in the right way without getting corrupted and that kind of thing, that, that was a, a big kind of technical challenge to, to overcome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And zooming in on this concept of the collaborative visual canvas. And I believe that Emblick recently announced some of these new features for Jupyter Notebook, maybe just uh, three months ago. And it actually being built on the research from Microsoft to embed some of the best aspect of the Essence Notebook 
into the platform and turning it from a li- linear notebook to a collaborative canvas. So can you talk more about just specific challenges to working with competition notebook and then how some of these new enhancement bandly can address some of these pain points? Sure. No, happy to do that. So I think general pain points with notebooks, uh, you know, you mentioned that paper from Microsoft that kind of does actually a really good job at laying out some of these issues, but there's things like for like quick exploration and quick analysis, sometimes using a notebook can feel a little bit unnecessarily time consuming, right? You need to install different packages over and over again for all, for the same analysis you might want to do. Uh, there's a lot of boilerplate code you end up writing if you want to create a visualization or you want to create a, a quick random forest to try out something. You end up actually writing a lot of lines of code uh, for things that you do over and over again. Um, so I think that that could be maybe one pay point that it feels repetitive and kind of boilerplate sometimes. I think the other thing that a lot of people struggle with is reproducing results and reusing code in notebooks. I think it's, it can be difficult to reproduce a result in a notebook with hundreds of cells just because you might not know exactly how those cells were executed at the time when you created the results. The flow through the execution is not not clearly defined, right? Yeah, so that that is another challenge. And then the whole collaboration aspect of notebooks basically doesn't exist, right? You can share it through Git, but there's no concept of real-time collaboration. There's no kind of real concept of talking about a notebook with somebody who's less technical. If you use a Jupyter notebook to present your result to your less technical stakeholders, you just show them lines and lines of Python code, but for them, it's not easy to understand and not easy to verify the assumptions you might have made in your analysis, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think the notebooks are great, but there are definitely a bunch of uh, pain points that they bring up. And I think with Android, we've had a, a good platform to address some of those issues. The collaboration one we talked about before, right? It's because we already have this built-in multiplayer mode and video audio collaboration. It's easy to, to expose that to, even if you write a lot of code in it. We have this concept of building data flows or execution flow, so you can link different blocks of code or no-code operators together. And that makes it really easy to reproduce results because it's clearly defined what the sequence is of running a, a set of steps. Yeah, and then the thing you mentioned that we announced is just, we made, made it just easier for people who already have existing work in Jupyter and being able to import it into Einblick and tying this back together, what we talked a little bit about beforehand of just making the learning curve from going from something like that to Einblick a, a little bit smooth for, for data scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And excited to see more of these features coming on from Einblick yeah, in the upcoming months or so to keep pushing the productivity of data scientists further. So let's take off your research product head and put on your father head. As I mentioned earlier, commercializing academic research is not an easy task for any researcher. What challenges have your team have to overcome to find some of the early design partners across various industries? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, as you mentioned, I think generally taking an academic or a research project and trying to turn it into a, a full-fledged product uh, it's just really hard and, and really time-consuming uh, for various reasons. We we uh, alluded a, a little bit at some of them beforehand. In research, there's just some things you just don't care about, right? I don't care if a user can reset their password uh, for a research prototype because I just build enough that I can show and study it, uh, but I don't have to make it bulletproof for everyday use. So for, for us, that was a an early challenge. We have this prototype. It, it did a lot of cool things and people liked it. But it was definitely not ready to be used uh, by anybody in, in a kind of uh, productive manner. We really spent a good year and a half heads down taking what we had, 
and rewriting it, re-architecting it in, in a way um, that would support like a more repetitive, more real world uh, use case. So I think early on, we struggled a little bit with that and it was hard to find a good balance between how feature complete does it need to be before people can actually use it and test it and yeah, finding that trade-off point between how polished, how feature complete it needs to be was a kind of a interesting challenge to overcome. I see. And uh, I was talking a bit on the website, there's um, a couple of verticals that you know, seems like I'm like focus a bit on retail, CPG, banking insurance, government, non-profits, just name a few. How, how, how do you think about just go to market and what kind of verticals to, to target? Yeah. Yeah. So early on, we have maybe two big advantages. One of them is being funded out of MIT. MIT has really good support of helping startups chat with companies. So there's this MIT industrial liaison program that hundreds and hundreds of companies, small or big, are part of. And there's always these conferences. So it's really easy actually to get in front of companies and chat with them about the startup that you're building and the product and how it could fit in into their environment. And we took advantage of that heavily. Some of the earliest adopters came through there. The other one was being part of DARPA. This DARPA program really helped us too because we we got access to a bunch of nonprofit and, and government-related organizations as early adopters. For us, that those two things really helped us get our, our feet wet with talking to potential customers really early on. I see. And now we changed a little bit of go-to-market strategy. Now we there, it's, there's a free version of I'm like everybody can just go and make an account and really trying to get people into the product as quickly as possible and make sure they like the product and then go from there and see if it makes sense to for them to buy like a subscription or an enterprise version of the product if they like it. Following more of the kind of PLG go-to-market model now than we might have done or did earlier on in the life cycle of the company. Yeah, thanks for putting out that part later. I think, yeah, there's a whole section on our website actually that showcase like videos, documentation, sample projects as well as tutorials and assuming these are good assets for potential users to just play around and, and, and get make a community adoption. Exactly. And then some of the things we talked about before, <laughs> making it easy, people who are familiar with Jupyter Notebooks or Python Notebooks in general, I think folks like that will have a really easy time to get into Einblick and see some of the advantages or overcome some of the pain points they might have with Python Notebooks. And I encourage everybody to just go to our website, make an account and start playing with it. Yeah, so you'll be showing sure put uh, the links to, to those uh, assets in the show notes so that people can, can learn a bit about it. There's just one final note on kind of the target persona. It, it seems like Enblick users are like data scientists, data analysts, some business operators, as well as even uh, student educators. Is there any particular like personas in terms of uh, users that you focus on more? Yeah, uh, definitely data scientists. So as I mentioned, people who are familiar with or working daily in Python notebooks and are looking for a tool that will help them overcome some of the, the pain points with, with Python notebooks. That's really the, the kind of target audience we focus on. I think maybe a little bit because of our academic background, we do have a lot of kind of data science learners, if you want. So people who are early on in their career and want to learn about data science that, that use the product. And similarly, people who teach data science courses, a lot of that Perhaps collaboration features can help you if you need to teach somebody some concept about data science. It makes it easy to help them out. But overall, definitely data scientist is the, the core target persona. Thanks for sharing that. Hiring. 
is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup CEO. And I saw that recently and, and they announced some three key executive highs. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are aligned with Amdex cultural values? Yeah, no. So hiring, I think it was one of those things that probably surprised me the most when going from academia to, to a startup. Like in my head at the time, being very naive, I'm like, we'll get the seed round. We'll have all this money. We'll just go and hire great people. But then it turns out it's not that easy, right? People have options and there's hundreds of startups out there that all do cool and interesting work. Convincing people to actually join your your company and your vision and really buy into that is a lot of hard work. And I spent a lot of time early on really focusing on that aspect of building the team, hiring and so forth. Yeah, no, generally like you know, we want to be open and honest and we like to have fun. And we, we believe in this idea that smart and hardworking people, if you have those, will attract other smart and hardworking people. And so ultimately, since we're still a small team, I think the thing to over-index on is just how well can you, do you think you can work with a particular person that you would potentially hire? even if things get tough. And I think that's really important to find people who are good at communicating, being honest and open and, and so forth. I think in our case, one, one of the things that made it a little bit special is because we're all former academics and don't have a lot of ton of industry and startup experience. One of the things we wanted to do early on is really make sure that we're bringing in folks who do have startup and industry experience, people who have been there, done that multiple times before. And so I think that's another thing we really over-indexed on early on to make sure we, we get people like that into the company. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. I'm just curious from a culture development part of you. I assume a lot of the academic culture is instilled in, in Embedded, right? And how do you balance that with the more startup mentality, the more hustle mode of the startup culture? How do you evolve the culture over time? Yeah, I know that's a good question. Yeah, I think it is actually challenging, right? I think one of the maybe problems of doing this transition is that in academia, you have, you come up with solutions, um, but it's not always clear what is the problem you're actually solving and who has that problem, right? Sometimes it's, you really fall in love with the solution you're building, but might lose a little bit track of who you're building that solution for. Trying to get out of this and really be customer first, really try to talk to as many people as possible and not fall in love with a particular solution that you think might work is really important and something that we've, we have to go through early on. Yeah, no, I think that one. And then on the flip side, I think the, some of the methods that academia teaches you about running experiments and validating through data, uh, I think they're actually translate really well into startup culture too, right? Like uh, you want to be running experiments constantly. Uh, you want to reevaluate based on whatever data so I think some of those things, academic training actually helps quite a bit too. So we talk about finding early design partners, customers. We talk about finding employees. And the last demographic we talk about is investors. Back in 2020, Amblick raised a seed round led by Amplify Partners with participation from top investors, including Firebridge Capital and Samsung Next. What fundraising advice could you get? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one of the things that helps me or us in general is We've never done this before, just talking to people who did a similar journey of spinning something out of an academic project into a company. Try to find folks like that, talk to as many as you can and listen to their journey and to their advice and what they did and what they wished uh, they would, do, would do better. I think it's important to find an investor that kind of has experience of working with your particular background or, or story, if that makes sense. In our case, 
finding an investor that has expertise of working with very technical co-founders, uh, perhaps even academics that have a little startup experience. That was important for us to find somebody like that. And then I think what can help too is just ask for references of investors, talk to companies that are in their portfolio. Uh, important here is actually to talk to companies that might have not panned out well, talk to former fund, uh, founders of a portfolio company that ended up not doing well, just to listen opinions of how does that investor work when things go well, but also how does that investor work when things don't go well to get a feel of that group. I don't know, maybe more from a kind of very tactical standpoint. I think the timing of these things is really important. One of the things we didn't do the best job at at the time is making sure all our conversations with different VCs were sort of at the same stage. So you'd want to make sure that if you get a term sheet from one of the investors, that you're not in a place where there's another investor that you've been talking to, but you like them a lot, but they're not at the right time to give you a term sheet yet, but your other term sheet's going to expire soon. I think there's a little bit of a a strategy of how to run like a process like that and making sure the kind of timing uh, works out uh, well. Thanks for sharing all those wisdom with Red Team Fundraising. We, we touched on a little bit you know, on, on this final question throughout our, our chat, but just thinking back about your experience in both academia and industry, what do you see as the differences and similarities between being a researcher and being a founder? Yeah, no, I think actually the kind of two topics we talked about before really resonate well here. I think one of them is in terms of a similarity, I think this being experimental, being scientific and constantly look at data, rerun experiments, I think really works in both cases. And I think, yeah, as I said, some of the things that academia teaches you help a lot there. Being scientific, run tons of experiments, that kind of thing. And then the other one is, yeah, building teams. Coming from a place like MIT and Brown University, it was always really easy to find students that are highly qualified, highly motivated to work on your research project. There's just lots of smart people around and it's easy to convince them to work on your project. If you're a postdoc, find other PhD students to work on your thing. But hiring and finding people in the startup world is very different and much harder, as we alluded to before. Top people all have options. Nobody's ever looking for a job. Uh, so you really need to sell and convince them that your company is the right one and that your vision makes sense and, and so forth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense both the similarities in terms of the, the mindset and then the difference in terms of leading teams. I think that's an interesting distinction. Emmanuel, at this point of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data science community whose work you admire. I really admire the, the work that the uh, Hugging Face folks are doing. So I would want to call that out as one. Wes McKinney, Pandas, and, and Apache Arrow, a big fan of, of his work. And Faith Ailey, uh, the professor at Stanford. Number two, name one book you would recommend for people to cultivate a scientific message. I recently became a thoughter a bit over a year ago. So most of the books I've been reading these days are actually around things like child development, that kind of thing. So I'm a little bit outdated in, in my scientific reading material. Maybe the book of why Judea Pearl, or at the time, I really actually enjoyed reading uh, Signal and, and the Noise from uh, Nate Silk. And finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the academics turn early stage founders on Twitter. What would you tweet about? 
I think maybe what we talked about before, if you're coming from academia, I think a common problem is that you have a solution, but you might not have the right plot problem or the right audience for it. Something that kind of speaks to that. If you want to be a little bit more cheesy or corny, something along the lines of product market fit is really as important as everybody talks about and use your scientific methods that you learned in academia to, to find product market fit. That's it. That's the end of conversation. So, Manu, I really enjoyed chatting with you today. Yeah, I like one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, learning about your um, educational background back in Switzerland, the time uh, at Brown University doing continuous research in SCI, InfoVis, and their science. Uh, some of your time working at MIT as well as a postdoc. And then uh, your current journey with Amblec building the visual computing platform that enables data scientists to become more productive. Uh, various technical threats related to product development, finding early design partners, go to market motion, hiring the right employees, finding investors, as well as the differences and matters between academia and industry. I'll be sure to include everything that we talked about today into the show notes. So listeners never chance to take a look, follow up and learn more about some interesting work that and Beck has been doing right now and in the future as well. Uh, yeah, so Emmanuel, really enjoyed our content and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.